God bless you. Thank you, the worship team, for really helping us. Thank you for entering in heartily to worship and reverently coming together around the table this morning. And so let's come with the same open hearts uh, and the same open minds and a will to reverently obey his word as we, as we come to it this morning. You know, I sensed as, as, uh, as we approach the, the end of the year um, and we start to look forward into 2020, uh, that really I've sensed in my spirit that we've come to a place in the life of this church uh, that's a little like where the children of Israel had come to as they arrived at the Jordan River and they were about to cross over into the promised land. And I believe that our current calling uh, as the people of God here in this church is to be crossover people who will trust God for whatever the days ahead will bring for us personally and individually, uh, as well as for us together as a fellowship and as, as a church, as his church. And so with that in mind, and, and with the benefit of, of the hindsight that we can look back into God's word, today and for the next two Sundays, first two Sundays in January, we're going to look back to see how God's ancient people approach the uncertain and relatively unknown future that he was calling them into. Then on January the 19th, um, the third Sunday in January, it'd be my last Sunday actually in this pulpit as well, before Pastor Neil comes and is uh, installed on the 24th of January. But on the 19th of January, I want to encourage us to be, to be the people and the church that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5. We've been looking at, at that on Sunday evenings and we'll, we'll finish out that series on the Beatitudes in the first three Sundays of January. But at the end of that, he also challenged his disciples to be salt and light in the world. And we'll look uh, on January the 19th at what that will mean for us. But as this year, and as I've said earlier, uh, this decade ends uh, and a new year dawns, there's no doubt that you know, we all face an uncertain future unless you've got a crystal ball and you can read the future, which, of course, none of us can. So it's uncertain in that sense. Uh, I think we can say that the world in which we live is not as predictable as it used to be. Uh, and, and the only thing that we can be sure of is God himself, the God who said, I am, and the God who said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I change not. Uh, pastor, author, and church leader A.W. Tozer, he was the, the president and a pastor in the denomination that I was a pastor in in Canada. Um, he wrote uh, many, many books. Some of you have read his, his, his books. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said, what comes into your mind today when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Oh, that, uh, that needs to settle for a moment, doesn't it? What comes into your mind when you think about God um, uh, is the most important thing about you. And that's why I want to say as we, uh, as we begin this message that that's why good theology makes all the difference as we face an uncertain future. In other words, we start with God with who he is, how he has revealed himself to us, who we believe him to be, and, and what promises he has made in his word uh, to us. Because if we start with that unchanging truth and a proper knowledge of God, then we'll have the right biblical foundation to face whatever might come our way in the coming year. 
especially in a time of an uncertain future. You know, during the dark days of World War II uh, for Great Britain, King George VI would sometimes speak to the people uh, over the BBC. And after the near defeat at Dunkirk, uh, when the Allied forces were left in complete disarray and, and, and the future seemed dark, he went on the radio and sought to touch the nation's spiritual uh, chords. Most of what King George uh, said on that day has been forgotten, except for these words that he quoted from the English poetess Minnie Louise Haskins, uh, who in 1908 wrote these words, and he quoted them. And I said to the man who stood at the gate, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than an unknown, or a known way. And today we're, we're, we're standing at the gate, as it were. We're on the threshold of another year. And, and while we're living, obviously, in the present, uh, and we're looking, starting to look to the future, we're going to put our hand in God's, as it were, at least in his word this morning, and to learn from the past, you know, Romans 15 and 4 says, Whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so I want you to turn with me to Joshua, uh, Joshua chapter 3 in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Um, for the next few weeks, we're going to examine what it means for us to become crossover people in the will of God. And so we're reading in verse 1. Uh, Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. And after three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you're to move out from your positions and to follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. And Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the ed edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. And Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites and Hittites and Hivites and Perizzites and Gergesites and Amorites and Jebusites, see the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from among the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. And so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. 
Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now let me, let me just paint a little mind picture for you to, to put into context what that scripture really is telling us. The, the two spies that Joshua had sent out earlier had returned from Jericho and, and they followed uh, Joshua's orders to check out the city and, and the land and they, they escaped discovery, if you remember, uh, with Rahab's help. And now they've come back to give their report to Joshua and their hearts were bursting with joy. Chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord has handed over the entire land to us, they said. Everyone who lives in the land is in fear because of us. And that was like news uh, to Joshua's ears, news he had been waiting for. And immediately he announced uh, the first thing the next morning, that they would break camp. They would, they would then pitch their tents on the banks of the Jordan River. And they would finally come to this entry point uh, to the promised land. And I'm sure the buzz throughout all the tribes were the same. This, this is the day. They might even have said, this is the day the Lord has made. We'll stand in the brink of a, of a dream. We, we'll come again to the place where our forefathers came before us, but they blew it. But this time we will obey. But then as they approached this famous river that formed a barrier between them and the long-for promised land, they, what they saw by the light of the day was both confusing and it was dreadful, it was devastating. The Jordan River was defiantly uncrossable. Verse 15 just gives us, gives us a little insight there. All it says is, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. The usually gentle flowing Jordan River was now a raging river, swelled to a flood stage, overflowing its banks throughout, uh, throughout the harvest season. Currents can reach up to 40 miles an hour when it floods, and the plain that surrounds this river was packed with tangled brush and dense growth. And in fact, one writer said it wasn't so much the river that was the problem as the jungle that was difficult to, to cross. And so here's the scene. The Jordan has swelled its banks, spreading about a mile across, ranging in depth from 3 feet to 12 feet, all covered with thick undergrowth that was floating around that could easily trip someone up, cause them to fall into the river and, and be overwhelmed by the current. This was the sight that greeted the multiple hundreds of thousands that pitched their tents along the river. Can you imagine? The Bible tells us they spent three days uh, right next to the river with the passing torrent probably eroding their confidence moment by moment. And they, the waiting uh, for three days probably exaggerated the reality uh, to every Israelite. And you can imagine the doubts that would have started to enter their minds over the night fires on those three nights. Maybe the, maybe the strong amongst us could cross over this flood, but how about the infants, the sick, the elderly? Not to mention all our possessions strapped to wagons. I'm sure an insistent, no, no, it's not going to happen. We, we can't do this, began to kind of form in their hearts and minds. Folks, it's easy 
for us to relate, I think, to those emotions and to those thoughts because so many of us face our own personal Jordans that sometimes feel so permanent and powerful that we don't even try to make it through. Our lives sometimes feel stalled. We're stuck, as it were, on the wrong side of God's promises. And as we read about the abundant life, it seems like we can't make it out of our own personal wilderness sometimes. You know, churches can feel that way too. Stalemated by the promise of something great with God, but blocked or hindered by doubts or fears or uncertainties or unwillingness to change or stubborn pride. Listen, God can turn a no way into a highway. Amen. The great question that loomed over the camp of Israel then looms over each one of us today. Will we walk by sight or will we walk by faith? Do we really believe that God can handle what seems to be impossible to us? And Joshua 3 goes on to tell us something that's echoed over and over and over again in Scripture especially Luke 18 and 27, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And God was about to reveal the steps that had to be taken in every life and in every church if we're to move from grounded to grateful, from being marooned in the past to marveling and being amazed at God's future. And the experiences and the decisions in this chapter were a major breakthrough for the people of Israel and a whole generation learned that victory depended on being totally obedient to God and leaning into God all the time. Now you don't need me to tell you that Monaghan Elam is a good church. Amen? I'll say it again. Monaghan Elam is a good church. But we're not a perfect church. And I believe there are better things, there are different things, more holy things even that God is calling us to, uh, to be and to do. An Anglican Old Testament scholar, Christopher Wright, has said, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, for God's mission. And he invites us to join him and I, for one, I'm, I'm excited to see what this new year will hold for this church and this congregation as we continue to go on mission with God. You know, part of being a church joining in God's mission is to recognize that, that missions is not just sending out those who are called of God to foreign lands and to faraway places to share the gospel. The need is also in our own neighborhoods. And as such, each one of us is called to be a local missionary, just where we live, where we work, where we play. And to go on this mission with God first demands a change in us. Because God's mission is changing people from the inside out for his glory. But listen, we can't call people to what we've not experienced ourselves. The Bible calls this inward journey of change holiness. Or to be set apart, to be consecrated in a new relationship for a particular purpose. And our growth in holiness involves many of the things that we'll examine in this short three-message series. But I want you to particularly note verse 5, first of all. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And I want to say that's a prayer that we should be praying as we 
as we move over the threshold of this old year into the new year. Consecrate yourselves, because I believe that in the days to come, God will do amazing things among you. Central to everything we're going to learn about being a crossover people, a people who are desiring to live in the victory of faith. Note too that Joshua speaks to all the people, not just to the leaders, and he tells them, consecrate yourselves. Now it's interesting that he's not saying, check your shields, sharpen your swords because we're going to go into battle. That would have been the logical thing to say at this particular place in their history. But instead he points to the spiritual issue of consecration. Consecrate yourselves for the Lord's going to do some amazing things. Speaking to the nation of Israel prior to his death, Moses, if you remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, described that process perfectly. He said, and God brought us out. Note that. God brought us out. From there, where? From Egypt, in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had promised to our fathers. You know, too many Christians have the mistaken idea that salvation, being delivered from the slavery of Egypt, if you like, of sin, is all that's involved in the Christian life. Listen, salvation, the new birth, is just the beginning in both our personal spiritual growth as well as our service for God. And I, for one, can identify with with what God said later to Joshua after the initial conquest of the land. In Joshua 13, verse 1, he said, There remains yet much more land to possess. And this theme is carried on into the New Testament book of Hebrews and other passages where the writer sums up this life of holiness. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And the only way to go on to maturity as a Christian is by faith. Faithlessness or unbelief says, no, no, let's go back or or let's stay where it's safe. But faith says, no, we've got to go forward. Let's go forward to where God is on mission. See, 40 years before, (coughs) Joshua and Caleb had assured the nation with these words, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. That's faith. But the people were fearful and said, no, not going to do that. That's faithlessness. And that unbelief, listen, that unbelief turned an 11-day journey into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And just as being freed from the slavery of Egypt pictures our salvation, so wandering in the wilderness, listen, wandering in the wilderness pictures a carnal Christian, the carnal Christian life. A life that's going nowhere. Saved? Yes. Living in victory? No. Not maturing. Just coasting through life. Never graduating from baby milk to strong meat. Only crying out, Daddy, there's something wrong. And never coming to age spiritually. Or to the place of real faithfulness, usefulness and responsibility. No smile. That little graphic up there. Do you know anyone like that? To be honest, you like that? Well, when the rebellious generation eventually died off, 40 years later, a new generation would march into Canaan, the promised land, and possess it. 
You know, Canaan is a picture of the victorious Christian life, although it's sometimes mistakenly, I believe, portrayed as a type of heaven. Moses couldn't enter Canaan because he disobeyed. Be Moses in heaven someday. Canaan is a picture of the life of victory, not a life of perfection, but one of growing in grace, maturing and gaining victory over various things day after day, victory over sin, the world and our own sinful flesh, and overcoming the devil. In the Christian life, listen, we're either overcomers or we'll be overcome. We're either victors or we'll be victims. So let me just take a moment and, and, and point out that every one of us here this morning is living in one of these three spiritual locations. You work it out for yourself. Some of you, listen, some of you are li still living in Egypt. You're still in the slavery of sin and you need to be saved. Some of you, maybe quite a few of you here this morning are living in the wilderness. You're saved going nowhere other than round in circles. They even have been saved for years, but you're not really digging into your Bible. You're not really praying. You're still not tithing consistently. You're still not making commitments to be faithful and to serve. You're saved, but you're stuck. Some of you this morning, hopefully, living in Canaan, you're saved, and you're going on with God. You're excited about your relationship with God. You're growing and enjoying the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. And despite hardships or difficulties that may come your way or have come your way, you're a giant conqueror, not a wilderness wanderer. Amen. Move through 2020. We can understand the words of Joshua in verse 4. He said to them, listen, you've never been this way before. Has anyone catapulted maybe in the TARDIS of Doctor Who into 2020? None of us. None of us. We've never been that way before. This year, as last year, life will take us through twists and turns and we'll have to go through new experiences just like the children of Israel were now facing. During that, listen, during that time of wandering in the wilderness, 40 years of going round in circles. You know, if we read between the lines of the first five books of the Bible, God's people would have become familiar with the surroundings of the wilderness. That's the danger. Even though it wasn't really God's perfect purpose that they should be there, they sort of got used to it. They would have become familiar with this little plot of land that they were wandering through. But now they've come right to the edge of the Jordan River and it's in flood. And you can imagine their anxiety. They've never been at this point or even crossed over the Jordan before. The Hebrew word translated to cross over or to pass over is abar. A-B-A or abar. And we all have those abar moments in life, don't we? Those defining moments of decision about school, about careers, about marriage, about money. Or crises that will arrive in our lives due to maybe sickness or financial troubles or relationship or family difficulties. Those are bar moments, moments of decision. What are we going to do? And as we look ahead into 2020, there's a danger that we too can become anxious. And the fear of the unknown can grip our hearts and our lives. 
So let me encourage you this morning by reminding you of the importance of your faith and trusting God. You don't have to read too much of the word of God to find out that the spirit of God energetically encourages us to trust God, to be people of faith. And I have to tell you this morning, there's nothing sadder, nothing more sad than to see an anxious Christian or a worrying, fear-filled child of God. There's nothing more sad. More than anything else, lack of faith and fear. Listen, it does something to us, yes. But more importantly, it robs God of his glory. The glory that he's the only one who can guide us through this pilgrim land. And the glory of his word that tells us that he's trustworthy. That he's Jehovah Jireh. The God who provides and who can bring us through any and every circumstance that may come our way. Spurgeon said he glorifies God most whose faith staggers the least. I like that. George Muller, the, the great pioneer of faith who trusted God in a way that many of us will, will never ever do. He said the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. I probably Paul wrote in Philippians, you know, be anxious for nothing. It doesn't mean that in our human condition we'll, we'll, we'll never be anxious. Of course we will. There's no good reason. Not to say be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and thanksgiving and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And then the promise is the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind. I've experienced that many, many times when my wife died very suddenly after we came home from Canada. Natural. I, I should have been anxious. I should have been fearful. And, 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 and there was a sense of, of, of that. You know, what's going on here? What's going to happen? stuff. Underneath it all, and our two kids who sang here on Christmas Eve will testify the same thing. Underneath it all, there was the peace of God that passes understanding that said, you know, it's going to be okay. God's got it under control. God knows what he's doing. He makes no mistakes. Some of you here this morning may be afraid or anxious about what changes the new year might bring or hold for you. Do we trust God or don't we trust God? We've all of God. But the truth is that within all of us, there's an inbuilt tendency to resist change. Change can often hold us in a spiritual paralysis that prevents us from crossing over into the depths of faith and the fullness that God would want us to experience. You know, we tend to build our little nest around us and we want to live and die in our little nest. Uh, and even if the circumstances that we're living in at the moment are difficult, you know, it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. And so we become comfortable with the problems that we have and we don't want to change. Oswald Chambers says, not often, but very every once in a while, God brings us to a major turning point, a great crossroads or crossing over in our life. From that point, we either go towards a more slower, lazy and useless Christian life, or we become more and more on fire, giving our utmost for his highest and our best for his glory. So let me ask you this morning, do you want your Christian life to be characterized by words such as slow Lazy, useless, or more and more on fire. 
I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to look back on all the years that I've been saved only to see that my life as a Christian has been one of just playing church going round in circles. We're confronted by a new circumstance, a new trial. God always comes to us by his spirit and if we'll wait on him, he will give us divine directions to get us through, to help us to cross over into what he has in store for us. And this is what God desired for ancient Israel and also what he desires for you and I in these days. First, the Israelites were willing to wait on God even when it was difficult to wait. And second, they were willing to follow God unconditionally. And third, they were willing to consecrate themselves before the Lord. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the next week or two and the amazing things that God was going to do for them. But today, notice first how these three days of waiting by the, the banks of the River Jordan were days of preparation for crossing over. They describe the kind of people God wanted the Israelites to become and the kind of people he yearns for you and I to be. And this issue of waiting is seen at the end of verse 1 and the start of verse 2. They camped, it says, before crossing over at the end of three days. So it was three days. After the spies had returned from Jericho with their favorable report, Joshua had led the people on what was really a 10-mile march from where they were to the banks of the Jordan. It would have taken them about a day. And then they were ordered to make camp again and wait for further instructions for three days. And as they waited, they had a growing awareness of the human impossibility of what God was asking them to do. So it was at this time when they knew that they were at the end of their own resources, as they looked at this raging river in front of them, that God was getting them ready to experience a miracle. That song's just getting into my head, into my head that Pastor Bill Dunn is famous for. Don't give up, you're on the brink of a miracle. Well, that's really what God was saying to these people. You know, perhaps more than anything else in our Christian walk, you know, waiting on God is the hardest thing to do. There was, a, there was a similar tension, wasn't there, for Jesus' disciples when after his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, Jesus said, Luke 24 and 49, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And for 40 days, the disciples had to wait for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, the resource that they needed to live a life of overcoming faith. We're an impatient people, aren't we? Patience is a virtue. Find it if you can. Seldom in a woman and never in a man. That's what they say. But we want things yesterday. And wait 40 days or three days. God's power was demonstrated for the church at Pentecost, wasn't it? And it would be demonstrated for Israel on the fourth day at the Jordan in a miraculous crossing over into the promised land. In the period of waiting at the Jordan, God gave the people two specific instructions that should mark the lives of all of us here this morning who are open to God's leading and his blessing. The first instruction was, was pretty simple. It was to follow the Lord. And it was stated, but it was stated in a very strange way. Until then, Israel, the people of Israel, had followed God uh, in a cloud. The cloud by day was their, was their uh, compass, if you like, and the pillar of fire by night, symbols of God's leading. And when, when they moved, they moved. It was a symbol of God's presence and his protection during their time in the wilderness. And now those symbols were going to be replaced by the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a, a large box containing sacred objects. 
And it was seen as, listen, it was the, kind of the portable throne of the invisible God. And it's mentioned actually 15 times in chapters 3 and 4 here. It contained the Ten Commandments that had been given to Moses at Mount Sinai. It also held the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And it also had a, a jar of manna to remind the people that day after day for 40 years, God had been faithful in meeting their physical needs. And it had also got Aaron's staff, which uh, had budded as a sign of the tribe of Levi being chosen by God uh, for priesthood, representing the worship of God. And so the ark symbolized both the covenant commitment that God had made to Israel and the covenant conditions that God had established for his people. It symbolized the presence and power of God with his people and the specific teaching and direction that God had already given his people. It was a sign that God was leading them and would continue to lead, lead them as they crossed the Jordan into Canaan. You see, folks, it's, it's not enough just to know what God is doing. There comes a time when we must move out and follow him. There comes even a time, listen, when we get up off our knees from praying and we start to do something to follow God. That might require us, many of us, often to leave our comfort zones. Israel was about to follow the ark through a river that was a mile wide and it, it couldn't have been easy. I want to say that following God may not be the easiest thing that you'll ever do, but it'll be the best thing that you can ever do. tell you that in my short, relatively short experience as a pastor, I've discovered that many times those who buckle under life's trials are those who are not following, who are not standing on the assurance of God's word. It seems simplistic. It was Charles Spurgeon who famously noted a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. <laughs> And if you want to have a blessed new year, not necessarily one without trials, I encourage you to develop or to renew your passion to get into God's word. It makes sense that if we've never been there before, 2020, we're going to need God's guidance. We're going to need his presence as we step on each day. And when we read the word of God and we pray and we meditate on it, we're inviting God to come into our situations and circumstances and he'll go before us even and he'll lead the way and he'll help us as we need to cross over whatever changes may confront us in the days ahead. Their circumstance was one that might naturally excite a thousand fears, yes, but their faith and their trust in the providence of God was going to drive all their fears away. As they followed God. So to follow God. Through what he's already spoken in his word. And then the second instruction. Was to keep a thousand yards away from the ark. They were to follow the ark. But they were to keep a, at least a thousand yards away from it. Now in today's Christian culture. This is an, you know, an instruction. That we need to remind ourselves. Of over and over again. Because it speaks. For the need. Of some degree of separateness between people and a holy God. The people had previously been commanded to never touch the ark even, to never treat the things of God lightly or carelessly because there must always be a holy reverence and a fear of the Lord in our hearts. 
And you know, in the modern church today, you don't see much of that holy reverence. They treat the things of God very lightly and very casually. 2 Corinthians 7 and 1 says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. May God forgive us. May God forgive us if we ever allow the spirit of familiarity to cheapen our walk with God. Regardless of what we go through with a, uh, with a holy, righteous God leading the way, at the end of the day, we're nothing but sinners who are saved by the grace of God. Also of importance for Israel at this point was the logistical issue, as I say, of staying far enough away from the ark so that it could be seen. It was held up by the Levites during the crossing of the Jordan. The ark was to lead the way across this, this treacherous river into unfamiliar land. And therefore the eyes of the people had to be focused on the presence and power of God represented by the ark and not on their dangerous circumstances as they crossed the Jordan. Close this morning. Let me ask you, are you in a place, some place today that you've never been in before? Demands on your strength more heavy than any time before? Is your faith being tested more than it has been before? Or maybe you're fearing the thought of unknown circumstances that may be ahead of you this year? Well, I want you to listen very carefully to these comforting thoughts. Draw this to a close. This year, 2020, unknown to you, but listen. Ask the Israelites, well, how did you get here? The banks of the Jordan. They'd say, we didn't come here. We didn't come here. We followed the fiery, cloudy pillar. We followed it wherever it went. So it was Jehovah who brought us here. Listen, God has brought you. He has brought me to the threshold by his grace of another year. And whatever will come across your path, you need to see that God's providence never brings us to the wrong place or to a wrong time. No mistakes. I'm in saying, I don't like it that much, but there's truth in it. If God brings you to it, you know the rest. Through it. Be encouraged this morning. In his sovereign grace, God has blessed you to be at this crossover moment between 2019, 2020, and whatever that may hold. Back in 1932, a pastor in Mississippi named A.M. Overton had a wife, three small children. His wife was pregnant with their fourth child, but when it came time for delivery, there were complications, and both she and the baby died. And during the funeral service, the officiating minister noticed Pastor Overton on the front pew writing something on a piece of paper. After the service, he asked him about it, and Pastor Overton handed him the paper with a poem that he had just written, which he titled, He Maketh No Mistake. My father's way may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache, but in my soul 
I'm glad I know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Though night be dark, and it may seem that day will never break, I'll I'll pin my faith, my all on him, for he maketh no mistake. So much now I cannot see, my eyesight's far too dim, but come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one. Only if you see the circumstances with the eye of fear that you'll falter and you'll fall. But if you see your circumstances with the eye of faith, you'll see that you're in the best possible position For God always chooses the best for his people. Listen, if it had been better that there was no devil, that there was no pain, that there was no suffering or death, God would have taken us straight home to heaven when we were saved. He wouldn't have let us go through any stuff. But instead, in his providential care for us, he works all things, good and bad, together for those who love him. So can you believe that? As you enter into and as you go through 2020, I hope you can. This as well. But this New Year's untrodden way is new to you. It's going to be new to me, but it's not new to God. God doesn't know the word yesterday. He doesn't know the word tomorrow. He only knows the word today. Where you will be tomorrow, he is today. And 10,000 million years ago, he knew what you would have to deal with in life. It's not new to him. The new path to you is an old path to God. Rather than looking at our earthly path, if you look higher to the very throne of God, and you look just to the right hand of God, you'll see the man of Calvary sitting there there one who not only knows the path that you will go through that's going to be new to you and me but also the one who has gone through it all himself before any of us best of all whatever our untrodden unknown year may hold if we follow God in his word and we trust in his providence it will bring glory to God not read the start to God be the glory all about. Verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. And so as you walk by faith, people who don't understand your situation and wonder how you can stand up in the middle of it all will somehow begin to know that God is with you with you when everybody else deserted you who ministered to you when you were sick the great physician who was with you when you went through the wilderness of sorrow the great comfort the very brink of death itself when you come to have to go through that and maybe you've watched it in the passing of a loved one in this past year uh, as you've seen everything that is mortal melt away you'll still know in the depths of your soul that he's a good shepherd 
who will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. And he is the life, the truth, and the way. Fullness that he gives is sufficient. Fill the soul with faith. All other created joys 